Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Day. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which took place on Friday evenings at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. on the Mythological African Twitter space. In today's episode, we explore folklore from the Kotoko people in Chad. All right, so we are reading today uh, from Told by Starlight in Chad, and this is a book by Joseph Brahim Said. And if you look in the top part of the space, you'll see some links that I have added about the the book and the author and um, from the time, the last time we tried to, to read through this book before. And um, he is a Chadian, or I don't know if he's still alive, actually. That's not something I've looked up. Probably not, uh, but he was, uh, yeah, he was, he died in 1980. Um, he was a politician, a minister of justice in Chad, um, and he wrote uh, this book of 14 folk tales was originally published in 1962. So um, we had tried to read from this book before a couple of months ago and we couldn't because my phone was being really weird at that time so it's great to revisit it again and we'll be picking up where we left off with the story called the eclipse of the moon so discord and dissension exists not only among men up there in the heavens the sun and the moon have vowed an unending enmity and yet the two stars seem to be made not to get along each one is duly sublime in its plenitude. Each one dispels the darkness. Each one shines for man, for the animals, for the plants. Eternal wayfaring travelers both light up the deserts, the forests, the lakes, and the small valleys. There is admittedly a difference of temperament between the two stars. Whereas the sun has an intense manly vigor that heats, energizes, and consumes, the moon has a motherly gentleness that caresses, refreshes, and soothes. The star of the day is as regular as clockwork. He rises in the morning, greets nature with a burst of scarlet fire. The moon, on the other hand, lacks constancy and self-assurance. She is playful and secretive. Sometimes she appears in the west, showing only her profile, spying as it were on the world that awaits her. Sometimes she shows herself in the eastern sky, boasting a radiant, full, round, white face. But this difference of character that sets the two stars at variance still does not explain the discord that reigns between them. The cause of their enmity goes far back in the night of time. One evening, weary of her frolicsome existence, the moon wished to meet the sun. She set out on the latter's path, climbing a treacherous slope, strewn with boulders, brambles, and thorns. After having covered a considerable distance and with much difficulty, she suddenly felt faint. In the space of a few seconds, her luminous white face grew dim, and a great shadow was cast over the earth. Seeing the moon approach him, the sun blew a wind, which split the boulders in pieces, 
and cause the brambles and thorns to jut out like sharp spears, thus riddling the already difficult path the moon was following with insurmountable obstacles. On top of this, he aimed his scorching rays at her and slowly the moon was consumed. She would soon have been reduced to ashes to scatter on the earth had it not been for the men who, becoming aware of the unfolding drama, entreated the sun to desist in its destructive course of action. Banging on upturned calabashes, floating in water vessels, the family set up to the heavens a deafening and disapproving furor. At the same time, they lit fires in front of their huts, some cooked millet, some corn, some groundnuts, and distributed the food to the young children. And after they had eaten their fill, the children sent up a prayer full of innocence that reached the very depths of the heavens. Thus it was that the agonizing celestial tragedy was averted. Overcome with pity, the sun relaxed the intensity of his rays, and gradually the moon regained her senses, got back her former strength, and turned around. Resuming her planetary course, she completed her revolution around the earth. It still happens to this day that the beautiful queen of the night repeats her tragic adventure by entering the sun's path. And as in the days go by, as in the days gone by, the people of Chad and their children, filled with foreboding, repeat in the night a custom that is a thousand times, a thousand years old, to secure the moon's deliverance and avert a cataclysmic cosmic event which would be without precedent in the history of the world. What I love about this story is how they so well he the words the 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 the, the writing is very lyrical um, but also i I'm just there are so many stories in folklore from African peoples and I imagine around the world where the sun and the moon are like basically fighting each other and I'm going to track down a few and share but if I remember correctly um there's a story from the fawn people in uh, in um, Benin. There's a story from the Maasai people um, and a couple others which um, describe some kind of fight that happens between the sun and the moon, not necessarily to describe an eclipse, um, but just, you know, reasons for their existence usually has to do with them chasing each other across the sky or why the moon seems to have, you know, these pop marks on its surface. Um, but... I believe, and um, you have to watch the Mythological African Steep Dive episodes, I believe it's episode two or three, where I talk about sun and moon symbolism from different African peoples. Um, but I believe it's among the Mende people as well, where um, the eclipses are viewed as some kind of um, fight between the sun and the moon, and the people will bang on pots and things to drive it away. But I also believe that um, amongst another group of African people, um, the eclipse is a time for reconciliation. So while the eclipse is going on, you are supposed to seek out anybody you have a grievance with and try to find peace because that, that you know, twilight time is, is a perfect time to resolve differences. So it's just it's interesting to see how different peoples come, you know, the different conclusions people come to as they... they um, experience eclipses and I can imagine you know just I have um when was the last big eclipse that happened which you know struck pretty much a lot of the U.S. I remember that time and even though we we have a pretty good understanding of why it's happening it's still a pretty eerie experience do any of you remember that eclipse 
I think it was 2019, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was pretty recent. There's one. Yeah, the solar eclipse, right? It was in town. Oh, are you think speaking of solar eclipse or lunar eclipse? I th- I think this was a solar eclipse. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, it was that... day, and then it got pretty dark. Yeah, that would be. I think that was 2019 because I was thinking of driving to uh, to see it. There's one coming up next year that I'm definitely going to drive to see because we're going to be able to see it in uh, Syracuse and Rochester. Yeah, they, they, they... yeah, that. Go ahead, Laura. That solar eclipse. I remember when I was in North Carolina for that one, and I'd never been through a solar eclipse before, and it was. It was scary. You know, it was weird. Lunar eclipses, you watch them and it's not terrifying because sometimes there's no moon, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, the moon comes and goes, but that solar eclipse, man, that was something. Right, right. And I can just, I can just imagine like, you know, watching something like that, especially if you are, you know, for people who depend on the sun and the moon for not just, you know, navigation or tracking, but these are celestial beings, you know, entities deities in, in your eyes just how that can you know mess with your head and you know make you basically question the world that you're living in um, but then the, so such beautiful stories come out of them um it's 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 always just interesting to me to see how they are contextualized and what lessons people pull out of them and in this story in particular i love that you know it's a fight between celestial beings but the people kind of come out and say okay we <laughs> we don't like this you'll knock it off you know, banging on their pots and pans. So, um, and I believe I'm just, I'm going through and sharing tweets um, that we've done before here. Um, And some of these, as always, are beautifully, beautifully illustrated. So anyway, any other thoughts on this story? I was going to just echo what you said. I love the idea that humans are somehow involved in, in fixing this. And, and it gives such a positive, you know, community mm-hmm. sense. It's not just like a high priest or some, you know, special individual or a hero. It's like everybody working together to, you know, bang their calabashes and, and, and the children, you know, to be well fed and right. then pray. All those little details are so cool. Right, right, right. Yeah. Anyway, sweet little story. This, so have you ever read a story? Have any of you ever read a story and you're just thinking this would be something that would be perfect as a picture book? Laura, I know you, you feel me here. <laughs> this would be perfect as a picture book, like the, the moon, you know, going up that hill with the brambles and the boulders and the people with their calabashes. But yeah, a girl can dream. All right. So moving on from the efforts of the moon. I think Nathan has his, his hand up. Uh, do you, Nathan? Yes, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to um, point out how effective I thought his characterizations were, the, the personalities of the moon and the sun, and the way that he described them. It was, it was just so very easy to see them that way uh, uh. yeah and and you know Nathan it's interesting you point that out because um, it's fairly consistent I think um, amongst most cultures that the sun is characterized as a masculine type presence and the moon as feminine um, but in 
in a couple of peoples um, across the African continent, the moon is actually considered a guy, like the women's husband. I I thought that was pretty funny, and the the things the, the things that make the sun you know masculine in some cultures are considered not so great. I think it's the Sandawi people in Tanzania, um, where the bright you know burning heat of the sun is considered just not good. I imagine because of drought, and the effect the ways droughts can devastate a culture to the point where. Um, to tell someone, may the sun see you, is considered just about the worst thing you could say to a person. Like, it's it's a curse on the unforgivable level. Like, you just you want that person to not be okay. And I thought that was pretty funny when, when I read it that time. Um, but absolutely agreed with you there about how the character... And so lyrical, too. Like, even as I read it, you know, I was thinking, wow, this is really, really beautifully put how he how he described them. Um, so, good times, good times. All right. Well, I'm thinking we could read The Kingdom of Wadai. And I want us to read this because I'm always interested in, like, historical-type folklore. So, and this one... This one cool. I'm looking at the story and I'm wondering, Laura, did we read this last time? I think we only did one story, but it looks pretty familiar. I thought we just did the the creation story and then things sort of broke up. That's what I remember anyway. Hmm. Or maybe I read it in preparation and then we didn't we just didn't get back to it. Well, well, the more often we hear a story, the more likely it is we'll remember it. So even if we did it before, I say, let's do it again. All right, let's do it then. The Kingdom of Wadai. And this is a short one and very historically dense. So in the 12th year after the flight, the year 1632, according to our calendar, the Prophet Muhammad died in Mecca. His mission was complete. Having succeeded in uniting the Arab world, he left his followers the clear charge of spreading Islam throughout the world. After him came three caliphates, those of Medina, chosen in the midst of raging rivalries, conquered Syria, the island of Cyprus, 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 Egypt, Mesopotamia, Persia, Armenia, and threatened Constantinople. Endless disagreements and internal struggles, however, engendered a crisis of faith, creating wide schisms in the fabric of the Muslim community. The believers were divided into Sunnites, or Orthodox Muslims, and Shiites, or supporters of Ali, the Prophet's son-in-law, and Karijites, or dissidents. Taking advantage of this split, Muawiyah founded the Umayyad dynasty, which reigned for more than 100 years and only came to an end with the assassination of Marwan II by Abu al-Abbas. A golden age ensued, rendered illustrious by al-Mansur and Harun al-Rashid, the greatest and most liberal of the caliphs, whose memory lives on in the elegant and poetic legends of the Thousand and One Nights. Despite its prosperity, however, this empire broke apart and was completely destroyed by the Turks. Thus, the Baghdad Caliphate disappeared forever. The deposed Abbasid family took refuge in Egypt. One Abbasid, of whom history gives no account, 
fled to the Hijaz region and settled in Medina, where his son Saleh was born. From an early age, the child was keen on learning, and after completing his education, he made long excursions across Arabia and struck up friendships with pilgrims who came from Black Africa. The pilgrims told him of the beauty of their lands and the noble qualities of their people, devotion to honor, hospitality, respect for the state of poverty when it is born with fortitude and integrity. These things kindled Salah's desire for adventure. One day, he followed the black pilgrims to the edge of the Nile, continued to the interior, crossing Darfur and Darmasalit, and finally reaching Wadai. There, Salah settled on the mountaintop and led the life of a marabou. The presence of this recluse aroused the curiosity of the people living nearby who sent a delegation of their wisest representatives to inquire what he was doing there. I am carrying on my religious duties, replied Saleh. I pray to Allah, who made heaven and earth, day and night, sun and moon, hot and cold, life and death. Allah, what is over the destiny of the world? Thereupon, he took the Quran, opened it, and reading the first verse, explaining its meaning, There is no God but Allah and Muhammad his prophet. Allah wants us to adore him and pray to him each day. These messengers returned to the base of the mountain deep in thought. After hearing the delegate's account, the people of the country unanimously agreed to send for Saleh. And from that time on, he lived amongst them, preaching Islam. Some time later, when the faith had won over every heart, he was chosen as their religious leader and converted three tribes. Each tribe gave him a very pretty wife, and in this manner, Saleh, or Sile, as the Wadayans call him, established the royal family to which every sultan of Wadai must belong. And there's a note. This Wadayan legend was mentioned by Karbu in his book, La Région du Chad et du Wadé, volume 2, pages 11 and following. So Saleh, or Sile, the founder of Islam in Wadai, is also called Abd al-Karim ben Jameh or Saleh ibn Abd Allah ibn Abbas. And according to Karbu, he chased the Tonjurs from Wadai in 1700. And according to Nashtigal, who's a German explorer, if I remember correctly, he chased the Tonjurs from Wadai in 1635. In history, Wadai is also referred to as Dar Sile. Now, I love this story for a variety of reasons. Um, the first being that it drives home the point that the, that, that notion of the African continent as this place that was unknown to the wider world is just is false, right? Um, and for all the qualms and issues we might have with you know, the implications of the spread of Islam on the African continent, and there are many, there is no question around the fact that um, there was a very fertile, rich intercourse happening between not just the African continent and Europe, but Africa, the African continent and the Arabian Peninsula and Asia. There was, there's always been trade and migration and ideas flowing back and forth um, to the point where one, you know, if you start looking a bit closely, it's, it gets increasingly hard to tease apart what is you know, what you might want to call authentic African from what, you know, might be an idea brought in from elsewhere. Or it might just be an idea that went out and came back with the flows of the different migrations. 
And um, there's this article which um, was written, I think, early this year um, by Ufemi Tayo, if I remember correctly. Um, and it pokes at this idea of, you know, a pre-colonial Africa, you know, a, a point in African history which is untouched by foreign influence and basically says, you know, that's, that's it's false, right? Um because and this is not to say colonialism didn't happen, you know, in in the way it did, and it didn't cause the disruptions it caused. But even before then, there has been, you know, movement of ideas, movement of people, and so the the African continent and African peoples are just at a very fundamental level influenced and shaped by this, and. You know, this this is this is something that I I will wrestle with every now and then as I you know do mythological Africans because um, when I when I started you know this project the idea was to really explore what African culture African identity African ideas um, are and even I eventually came to the conclusion that there are without doubt you know ideas values, um, ways of being and thinking and living that, you know, are indisputably, you know, from the African continent. But the the notion of, you know, an African continent untouched and uninfluenced by the rest of the world is 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 very hard to to hold on to. Um, and you know, that is in many ways a good thing. There it is. I found it. Yeah. I'm going to share it here in case you haven't read it. It's a very, very well-written area. That that can be uh, an interesting position to take um, because for different reasons, you know, people want to present ideas about the African continent. And I can't say that I blame anyone who wants to take this position. I see your hand, Laura. I can't say I blame anyone who wants to take this position because um, there is a way in which, you know, ideas from the continent especially if they're presented by people from the continent, you know, with black faces get minimized, get diminished as if they're not, they're not good enough. Meanwhile, you know, ancient Egypt, for example, one of the oldest civilizations on the planet, you know, is firmly rooted on the African continent and it's highly, highly influenced cultures across the continent. Um, you go back to some stories, some myths, some deities, and you definitely see the hand of, you know, ancient Egypt in there. So it's it's a it's a world that I'm still exploring, because the last thing I want to do is act as if there is no such thing as a, you know an authentic indigenous African um, philosophies and ideas and and ways of being, but I also don't want to to do that thing of you know acting as if it, it existed in isolation because I don't think that that helps in any way. Anyway, Laura. Yeah, I was just going to chime in and agree with you from my perspective, which is from the ancient world, right, where there were Greeks and Romans all over northern Africa. And it's not like somehow the African continent was divided. No, you know, it's a continent. And so the Greeks and the Romans are there. There's the Mediterranean. Obviously, ideas are being shared back Mm -hmm. and forth. And it really bothers me that in, in the European Eurocentric perspective, it's kind of like there were Greeks and Romans there and then Africa disappears for 
1500 years or something, you know, and it's like, okay, bracket it. Don't say anything about Africa. Don't think about it. That's ridiculous. There is a continuous flow of back and forth of, of cultural contact, sharing, collaboration, creation all the time. And we're just fooling ourselves if, if we somehow think that that gets suspended just because the Greeks and Romans are gone waiting for, you know, European colonizers to come centuries later. And, and I'm so grateful to scholars like Verena Krebs, people like that who are working on trying to fill in all those gaps and, and show us the, the material evidence, the letters, the chronicles, stories mm-hmm. like the one you just read that fill in those gaps for anyone who thinks there was a gap. No, we're filling it in. Right, right. And, and what, what bugs me even more is the idea that the flow of ideas was unidirectional, you know, as if these scholars... Um, could only be the ones imparting information to African people. They couldn't be pulling stories. I think it's you, Laura, who always comments on the fact that Aesop's fables have a distinct African flavor to them, and nobody ever seems to want to make that acknowledgement. Um, it's, it's, it's incredible, really. It's incredible, really. And I am increasingly of the opinion that what this does, you know, and in an insidious way, is something that, an unintended consequence of wanting to protect, you know, the, the, the authenticity of African ideas. But then it strips us of the, our situation in history, right? It strips us of our, our placement in the history of the world to say that, okay, this, this was a European introduction, you know, and, and it's, it's basically ignoring the fact that we have really always been there and there've always been ideas going back and forth and, you know, we can really, I mean, it goes back to the whole quintessentially African, you know, philosophy of Ubuntu. We exist as a people because we are in the context of the whole wide world. And the whole wide world cannot be without people from the, literally cannot be, cannot exist without people from the African continent. So I, it's still, it's still a territory that I am, treading lightly because like I said um, I feel people get really sensitive about it you know as if when you you make this claim you're almost trying to say that you know there is no such thing as an authentic African identity there absolutely is but it has always existed in the global context and to to not acknowledge that I feel like it does us African people a disservice you know it, it takes away from us more than it gives to us but and, and, and what's, what's interesting, especially when you consider it from the perspective of Islam, is that, you know, Islam predates what Christianity on the continent by at least a couple hundred years, if not even a millennium or so. Um, and that influence has always been pretty strong. That influence has been pretty strong and undeniable. Um, again, not to minimize the, the harmful, you know, impact that it has had um, at what, you know, at one point, it becomes an inextricable aspect of the culture, and there, there are Africans who embrace it fully. You know, Laura. Well, and I was going to say too about Christianity. It's really important to distinguish the Christianity that came with colonizing missionaries mm-hmm. that you're referring to, and Coptic Christianity and Ethiopian Christianity that are older than any of those established Mm -hmm. European churches, right? So, and that's what I really liked about the story you read today too, was that 
you know, that was the spread of Islam without an empire. That was this, this spiritual man who came to a place. Mm -hmm. He didn't have an empire behind him. He just had his faith. And it's the story of his faith and his interaction with these people. So. Right. That's, that's a really interesting point you make, Laura, because um, the same as Ethiopian Christianity, for example, didn't come, you know, with, with, an empire behind it with a, a conquering force with it. This was just one pilgrim, you know, who made this journey, you know, ensconced himself on this mountain and, and you know, spread the, 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 the word of his faith, you know, by, by contact, by communion, by, by working with the community. So these, these are dynamics that, you know, like you said, there are scholars more skilled and knowledgeable than, than me working through. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to what comes comes out of it because like I said there are many Africans who are devout Christians and that's not going to change anytime soon Um, there are many Africans who are devout Muslims and that's not going to change anytime soon and you know something I found interesting in this story is how you know this this Saleh person established himself as a marabou now growing up in Cameroon a marabou was not an imam a marabou was like a, a shaman you know so he the, the sense I'm getting from this was was that he wasn't so much, uh, you know, a, 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 an Islamic cleric who set up and made you know demands on how people should live. He, I, I get the sense that he incorporated his 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 Islamic ideals with the realities of the world around him and brought spiritual knowledge in a way that it was relevant to the people, and that's evident in how they they welcomed him. So these are dynamics that I think. Um, will need to get explored and excavated, you know, delved into and hopefully something holistic, more representative of who African peoples are comes out of it. Um, Laura? And just to chime in with a really fascinating parallel from India, you know, obviously there is Islam in India and Islam came with an empire, the Mughal Empire, but there is also an important sort of movement of Islam in India that came from these wandering Sufis, you know, so mm-hmm. if you look especially at southern India and the the Muslims who came, the, the devout sort of saintly Sufis and in southern India and the impact that they had, that really reminds me of the story that you just read. It's the, you know, India has, has both Islam with an empire from the north, but also these spiritual movements uh, in the south. Right. And, and there's a way in which they, they wove themselves into the dynamics and the realities of African life, because... Um, I remember reading the article, um, and I think most of you in here must have seen it, the, the, the Senegalese man who was digging through his father's papers and saw this, these letters that he had written in an Arabic script, um, but which had been adapted to uh, Wolof, which I think is the, the, the language spoken in, in Senegal. And underneath all of this, um, well, there was... Um, movement activity by uh, 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 communities of Sufi people who use this script as an, an act of resistance against colonial forces. You know, so, so this, that is a complexity, the complications that will, will challenge a lot of the notions around, you know, identity and who has a right to what. Because if you have a situation where um, an Islamic script, you know, adapted to an African language and was being used to challenge European colonization, that, that shakes a lot of, you know, ideas about who African peoples are and who they could be. And it's, it's like you said, still a very, very fertile um, um, 
field for scholarly work and I am looking forward to see what comes out of it. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, it, it pokes holes in a lot of the, the tensions that, that exist right now about, you know, who you can or who you should be as an African person and paves a way for just a more, more, I don't know, I don't want to say relaxed, but a more, you know, a workable playing field for figuring out what the heck this is all about, you know, in the aftermath of colonialism and, and all the all the, the damages that it wrecked. So anyway, that that was a good one. I, I quite like that story. Um what should we read next? Maybe something not so not so intense, right? <laughs> Maybe something not so intense. So let's see. What's what seems nice and lighthearted and short? Let's see here. All right, we can do the most beautiful girl on earth hidden under an ass's skin because that sounds fascinating. All right, so the story of the most beautiful girl on earth hidden under an ass's skin. Amsitep was a woman as devout as she was beautiful. So she declined all the offers of marriage made by the many suitors in her village. This is starting to sound very familiar, Laura. <laughs> To have her life better reflect her ideas and ideals, she laid out a magnificent garden around her hut. Its many bird cages attracted the blackbird with its shiny coat, the turtle dove with its gray feathers speckled with crimson, the black magpie with its long tail, the yellow canary, and the fly catcher which flaunts all the colors of the rainbow. Every morning, this splendid garden would open its gates to the children of the village. Playing their various games, some would hop along the sandy paths while others would chase one another in the shrubbery. Amsitep would go from one to the other, comforting those in tears and reassuring the more timid ones. And so her days were spent amidst the shrieks of delight and innocent tears. But when evening came and the children would go back home to their parents, Amsitep found herself all alone. In the silence of the night, she would implore Allah to fill her solitude with the blessings of her child. God answered her prayer and she became pregnant. This event presented spiteful gossips, the occasion to cast aspersions on her chastity and spread malicious rumors, but Amsitep paid no heed to their slander. One morning, to everyone's great astonishment, she gave birth, can you believe it, to a little ass's foal. Yes, a little ass's foal with long ears. The inhabitants of the country were filled with dismay. Men and women whispered in tones of agonizing bewilderment, some even claiming that it was surely a punishment from God. It followed that the terrified parents kept their children at home and poor Amsitep was abandoned by all. But far from feeling saddened, she considered herself most fortunate. Like all African mothers, she lavished affection and unremitting attention on her little ass's foal. She was never ashamed to carry her on her back and sing this little ditty. What do you know how to be more radiant than the rising sun? Or what do you know to be more radiant than the rising sun? My beautiful little foe. What do you know to be sweeter than scented honey? My graceful little foe. As soon as she was steady on her legs, Amsitab let her play in the garden where she gambled and skipped around, letting out sonorous hee-haws. 
It even became her want to leave her alone at the hut and when she went out to the field. When she went out to the field. And so it happened that one day the little ass's foal had a notion for a cake. Shutting herself up in the kitchen, she took a little millet maize and crushed it in a mortar. This commotion, when Amsitep was not at home, attracted the attention of an inquisitive little boy, Abaka, who was playing nearby. Succumbing to his curiosity, he peeked through the keyhole and to his great surprise saw a beautiful little girl pounding grain. Beside her on the floor lay an ass's skin. The little boy went away quietly without breathing a word to anyone. But the next day he came to find the little foal and share his cake with her. And from that day forward, the two became constant companions and shared their animal secret. Much later, when the day came for Abakar to choose a wife, he proposed to the foal, now a full-grown she-ass. His parents called him a fool and his friends mocked him. But Abakar was not concerned about their sneers and jeers. He had made up his mind to marry the donkey, and the whole country laughed and scorned the idea. In a rage, his father took a knife and set out to kill his son, but at the sight of a woman as beautiful as the dawn, the arm about to commit murder dropped the weapon, and Abakar simply said, Father, meet my wife. The man could scarcely believe his eyes. He ran to embrace Amsitep and tell her what he had just seen. And without further ado, he went back home, invited all the villagers to the marriage banquet and served them food and drink. Then he ordered his servants to bring the most beautiful loincloths and the finest garments. Go, he said, dress my son and his wife. Let us rejoice in this happy union. And in this manner, Abakar's wedding to the most beautiful girl on earth, hidden under an ass's skin, was celebrated. Amsitep died for joy, praising the Lord. A water lily grew on her grave radiating white petals topped with golden stamens. This flower, the symbol of the supreme beauty of woman, was the exact likeness of her daughter. And that is why in Chad today, the highest praise and greatest compliment one can accord a woman is to whisper softly in her ear, you are as beautiful as Amsitep's daughter, or you are as beautiful as Abakar's wife. So this didn't quite go where I thought it was going, but this story has so many, many themes from different stories in it. I don't even know where to start. Any thoughts on this one, Laura? Well, I'm just so excited that it, it's a, a proverb story, right? So if we didn't have that story, you wouldn't understand what those proverbial phrases right, mean. Right, you right. gotta have this story and what an awesome story wow it is and it reminds me um the the proverb um part uh to i believe um the story of uh gida the dragon and tia jatabari where um till today apparently i think some of the malinke people where it said you're as beautiful as tia jatabari so um one other one other type of proverb to add to that but there, there are so many interesting things about this story. So first of all, the idea of the woman who is very beautiful and chooses not to marry. And this, this is a departure from the standard uh, uh, way these stories tend to go because usually she ends up in trouble. And in this one, I guess, because she is, she is uh, virtuous, you know, that, that doesn't become her lot. Um, but then the story also of the child who, you know, shows up in one form but is really in another form 
is really you know not their their real form and helps their mother with work that's also a pretty common theme that you'll find in stories um from from all across the continent really um and usually the the idea is that the the the, the parents can't say where this child is from so that's that's where this the story departs from also but also of the miraculous birth right like that's that's something that shows up quite often also um but then the 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 part where this man makes up his mind to marry an animal which turns out to be a beautiful girl made me think of the story of the monkey girl um uh, which also is from nearby sudan but then is a trope that shows up in stories you know from from all over the the world really you know a person marrying some kind of creature which turns out to be a beautiful woman what i find curious though and this might just be me um you know, showing my ignorance of the matter, is the the water lily. Because um, in my mind, what water lilies, you know, probably because I spend so much time in Buddhist circles, you know, that's that's the the one, you know, cultural context in which I find water lilies. But then Lake Chad, you know, is a pretty large water body, and I imagine they have various species of lilies in there. Um, but what's especially interesting is that there is this reference to a flower which you tend not to see in many African cultures. Um, I remember there was a theme for for flowers in col in folklore, and when I when I poked into that a bit, um, what I found was that the the flowers don't you know show up a whole lot in um, in folklore from different parts of the continent. Um, but then you know. The, the, there's a caveat in one of the, the research papers I read that the more Islamized uh, a culture is, the more likely you will find references to flowers um, and the like. So this perhaps makes sense in that context. But then there is, um, I believe, amongst the Busongora in Uganda, an, an art, I think it's called Ebiko, hope I'm remembering that right, where basically people use flower arrangements to communicate messages. So there's always, there's always that exception to the rule, right? Um, but yeah, quite a few things I found noteworthy, interesting in the story. Uh, Laura? Well, I was going to comment too about how easily it was Islamicized, right? That, that you have mm. the miraculous birth could have happened in all kinds of ways. You know, it could have mm. been praying to a tree spirit or an ancestor spirit or fertility spirit or whatever, but here it was just very naturally Islamicized with a prayer to Allah. Mm-hmm. And one thing that happens similarly in a lot of European folk tales and fairy tales, and, and you don't see this a lot in popular books for children because it makes people uncomfortable, but a lot of fairy tales are Christianized in the same way where you'll have, like, say, St. Peter just showing up in a fairy tale or someone praying mm-hmm. to God <laughs> and they give birth to a baby cabbage or whatever. It's It's... You know, you have the religion sort of grafted onto the folktale in a way that was very natural for these peasant storytellers, but makes literary artists kind of uncomfortable because it's mm-hmm. it's mixing genres. And here I thought it was just Islamicized so easily and naturally not a problem. Just just roll right along. Right, right, right. It's. You know, I'm finding more and more that this it just it doesn't bug me anymore because, like I said, when I when I started mythological Africans, it was all about okay, how what is the most authentic African story I can find, and more and more, you know, what am I so what am I gonna say that this story is not 
a story of the Chadian people because it has all these, you know, influences and stuff. You know, you get to a point you just kind of have to roll with things and accept the the influences that show up because it's not it's not unique, right? As you're pointing out, Laura, it's not unique to to stories from the African uh, continent alone. Um, this happens all over, and it is the nature of storytelling when you really, really think about it. Um, but I also noticed. Um, so I know I always call you. Um, Agent Arjan in here, Agent Silver. But you, you mentioned that you've heard this story before. Are you, are you able to talk to us a bit about that? If you can talk or respond in the, in the chat or something. Was this the exact same story you heard or maybe a different version? If you can hear us at all. She's showing up just as a listener, not as a speaker. So here we Hi, can you hear? Oh, okay, I got it. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, yeah, I've heard it before in a book that I used to read on fairy tales. I'm trying to get the name of it off someone now. I can't remember it. Um, on the history and origin of fairy tales. And that one used to come up. I think there's even like a whole chapter on it because it's so common. Mm. that's all i really know right <laughs> okay no that's 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 fine that's fine it's it's good to see that like you know it is a known thing because as we were talking about there are quite a few things in the story that you know are common themes that will show up in folk tales from pretty much everywhere not just in like tropes or symbols, but also just the storytelling, the unfolding of things. So, yeah, when I find out the name, I'll, I'll let you know what the book was that I, I used to read about this in. Yeah, that would be, that would be actually pretty great. So, yeah. Anyway, I think that's all we have time for today. I'm really glad that we finally are able to return to this book. And I'm going to keep this one in rotation for a while. Um, because I am quite enjoying the stories, and I, I always, I always try to balance things out so we get you know stories from as many different parts of the continent as possible and be as representative of the full African experience as we can be. Right. So thank you all for making time. Thank you for your comments and your your participation, your presence, and we will be back next uh, Friday same time 6 p.m eastern with more stories and in the meantime i hope you have a good weekend please stay safe take care of yourselves and uh i'll see you on the twitter streets have a good evening you guys bye <laughs>